Coming up next, what podcast breaks through yonder window? <laughs> window? <laughs> it's the Kool-Aid. Always break windows. <laughs> it's the Kool-Aid man. <laughs> uh, that's right. You'll be drinking the Kool-Aid. That is the bookening. We'll all wear sneakers. Do they wear sneakers? Didn't, wasn't there some cult that wore sneaker, a certain kind of shoe? Yeah. They all wore Nikes. Yeah. Was that Heaven's Gate or was that Jim Jones? That was Heaven's Gate. Oh, yeah, Jim, Jim Jones, they drank the Kool-Aid. Jim Jones, they drank the Kool-Aid. Anyway, <laughs> Midsummer's Night's Dream! Everybody, welcome to the bookening. This is Nathan. You're, you're whatever. I'm here with Brandon. You're doing okay, Nathan. Now that you ask, Brandon, I don't know why I get up in the morning. Huh? I am a sad, useless sack of slime. Wow. Agree or disagree? <laughs> True or false? <laughs> I um, abstain. Is that what they say? You abstain. I abstain. <laughs> oh. and, and speaking of completely pointless blobs of flesh <laughs> occupying space for a brief vapor-like amount of time accomplishing nothing jake is over there how's it going jake uh <laughs> are you enjoying your existence that is you're, you're are you strutting and fretting on this stage like an idiot uh. your thoughts <laughs> Wow. <laughs> when you put it like that, I, uh, yeah. It just struck me, guys. People, they think that life has a point. Uh-huh. They think they, they get up, they go, they do things, they go to work, they get married, they have fun. What are they really doing? They're doing stuff that they don't like to etch out a little time for a, a transient little piece of pleasure, whatever gives them pleasure food, sex, drink, movies, TV, books friendship yeah that's all there is that sounds pretty good (laughs) (laughs) it's safe to say i'm a little depressed today guys why is that jake told me that there's a a religion and spirituality thing a, a top category on um itunes and it turns out despite what you might think we're not number one oh mm you mean the bookening's not number one? Right. That's, that's really too bad. You'd think we're a religion and spirituality show. Yeah. Are we we come at categorize that way. On, I, I have no idea. Actually. Not. Yeah. The, no, but we talk about religion and spirituality. And what I realized, guys, is we're not number one. That's a shame. You know who is? I don't Probably know. Probably Joel Osteen. Oh. Jen. Hat maker. And she's not even a hat maker. More like a brat maker. If you follow her advice on parenting, which I assume she gives because she's a woman. Yeah, she probably does. What does Jen Hatmaker do again? She may not have babies, but she can make a lot of heresy, right? <laughs> Jen heresy maker? <laughs> is she a heretic? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Jen, if you're not. <laughs> she's probably good. I don't know. I have no idea. Joel Osteen's number two. Here, I'm going to text Perfectly my good wife guy. and... We'll just go with whatever she says. Jake is texting his wife. This is very exciting. We're coming to you live. We're going to find out whether Jen Heitmacher is good or bad. Hold your breath, I Jen. The, I get them confused. I, she may be the woman who's at like Matt Chandler's church and is pretty good. If there was money on this, which there could be, Brandon. Yeah, I got 25 cents on it. Jake, you in? Sure. Okay. Brandon, can you spot me? I'll spot you. Yeah, <laughs> yes, okay. I got it in my car. Keep going. <laughs> so you're both? She's number one. Well, she's number one on... Religion and spirituality podcast, right? Which means she's great, right? The American yeah, who's, public. Everybody who's number really two? Tell me who's. A, tell me who number two is. Well, that would be our buddy. Uh, let's see here. Joel Osteen is what you said. <laughs> I'm sure, yep. it's Joel Osteen. Mr. Yeah. Joel Osteen. Yeah, nothing. And who's number him. three? Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is <laughs> number eight. Sounds fantastic. That's probably a great <laughs> proof that we should be right up there, listeners. If we're not in the top ten by the end of this year, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> We're walking away. <laughs> We're walking away. Rate in review. That's really my point. If you want to save me from crippling depression, you need to put us in the top 10, listener. 
Amanda has spoken. Amanda has spoken. And what does the great Amanda say? She says bad. Oh, no. Endorses gay marriage. Mm. Oh. Two gins, one good, one bad. Gin Hatmaker, bad. Gin Wilkin, good. There we go. Gin Hatmaker, I apologize for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) The Robcast is number 13, Rob Bell. Oh, the Robcast. (laughs) The Robcast. Hey, Rob, did you know that your name shares its origins with Hob for Hobgoblin? Just a thought. (laughs) (laughs) Just a thought. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Tune in every week, folks. You'll hear us the most literate takedowns of modern heretics. (laughs) Bishop T.G. Jakes, his his podcast is called The Potter's Touch, probably also about Harry Potter, if I had to guess. (laughs) Ask Pastor John, Desiring God Ministries. There There we go. go. Number 41. Put us in the good company up there at the top, guys. That's (laughs) the point. Launch us to the top. Folks, I'm just kidding. I'm in a good mood, and you're joining us for another episode of The Bookening, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to do the whole thing, though. You know who they are. I don't have to. Brandon needs, he, he's a man that brooks no introduction. He's Brandon Chastain. He's, anyway, welcome to The Bookening. I'm Nathan Alberson. We're going to talk about Midsummer's Night's Dream, the old immortal bard himself. And we might as well get right to it. We got the pastor who's a master, the scholar who's a baller. And let's do it, fellas. What do you say? Let's do it. Do it. Oh, we got to do shout outs. Brandon, ready to do some shout outs? Oh, let's do it. <laughs> Listener shout outs. Uh, shout them out to Beth. Beth. <laughs> shout them out to John. John. Shout them out to Eric and Catherine. Eric and Catherine. <laughs> Eric and Catherine. <laughs> shout them out to our secret guest donor. Secret guest donor. <laughs> he needs a cooler name. Shout them out, shout out to Mr. X. Mr. X. <laughs> All right, let's talk about, uh, let's do some uh, some uh, context. Brandon, you ready for some contextual Texan? Yeah, let's do it. Forsooth, what context breaks through yonder microphone? It's the context of Brandon Chastine. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Texan. This is the context, contextual Texan part. He's going to give us some context about our work today, which is A Midsummer's Night's Dream by, I'm going to say that right before the end of this recording session, A Midsummer Night's Dream by the immortal bard of Stratford of Hahn, Avon? Avon? Avon. Avon is how we pronounce it. That's the first piece of context you're going to get. And now, you Brandon. just keep going. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what else, Nathan? Shakespeare? Shakespeare? Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Brandon's going to give you some context on the immortal bard of Stratford upon Avon, Mr. William Shakespeare, and whatever else Brandon feels like telling you about an old midsummer night dream. And take it away, Brandon. Um. Oh, where are we going to start? I. We've already talked about Shakespeare on a prior episode. Was it a year ago exactly? I uh, thereabouts. Yeah, I think it was when the same we did Hamlet. Yeah, did we do Hamlet in August? Or no, we didn't do Hamlet when we did uh, Macbeth. Macbeth. Yeah, the Scottish know. play. So people could go back and they could listen to that and get all the context they need. So we are done. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, we can recap a little bit about Shakespeare and then get into some other fun stuff. Yeah, let's have some fun. <laughs> all Does right, that Brandon. Like, that sounds like a good idea. You ready to have some fun, Jake? Oh yeah. Because Brandon's about to lead us through some fun. Well, let's have a rip roaring time. A here. rip. I have some notes that make no sense to me now. <laughs> Written on, interestingly enough, for Brandon Fran- fans, if you're keeping up, he wrote it on like graph paper or something this is like work that. paper. I usually like I can draw maps and stuff on here. Oh, yes. But up here, my wife was making a um, a now defunct food list, so you can see the end of the word spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you? Unless I'm going to be talking about spaghetti. It- I could try to work that in. I am waiting with bated breath to find out how the spaghetti ties into this. I have a dash right there that I have no idea what I was about to write <laughs> next to the dash. I was doing this while I was holding my daughter earlier. Up at the top, the, the theater underlined. <laughs> <laughs> the theater. I have a reason. We'll get to that. Okay. Okay. Take so, Shakespeare. Yes. Let's. We, we usually start with the life of the author, so let's just start with the life of Shakespeare. Just a quick recap. He was born in 1564. Um, His dad was a fairly prominent, not businessman, but just a prominent figure in his town. It was a small-ish town. This book that I have here, it's the Oxford Shakespeare. I highly recommend it because the person who put it together is Stephen Greenblatt. And for all Stephen Greenblatt's problems, he's a new historicist. And the new historicist movement really stressed understanding the period that the author was writing in. And so you get the typical liberal agenda that that comes out of, but also you get some really interesting stuff. And so he's pioneered really kind of almost almost a type of archaeology where you just study the life and the culture of Stratford-upon-Avon as Shakespeare was growing up. And so we found out some interesting things about him. Um, His dad, I think he was an alderman. He oversaw some of the 
properties in town, kind of administrated estates. And so he, as far as upbringing went at the time, and as far as a hierarchical classes went at the time, he would have been fairly solidly middle class. Pretty sure he got a good education at um, some of the, at one of the schools there. I, in fact, I meant to write his name down because it was fun. I think I can probably find it here. They actually think they know the name of Shakespeare's teacher. Let's see. Portrait of a young provincial. Yeah, they actually think that they know the name of his teacher. So his teacher would have been Thomas Jenkins, who was an Oxford graduate, received 20 pounds a year and a rent-free house for it. And so there you go, Thomas Jenkins. You get the shout out of having been the teacher of Shakespeare. The, the, which yeah, wow. that's a it's pretty great honor for a teacher, I suppose. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Mr. Holland never had that. <laughs> I know Mr. Holland had an opus, and Mr. Robin Williams had some students stood on his desk for him and stuff like um, that. It was no Thomas Jenkins. <laughs> He's no Thomas Jenkins, that's for sure. Anyways, so... Shakespeare did not dress up like an Indian and throw himself out of a window because his parents were oppressive. No, he didn't. As far as we know, he had a fairly happy upbringing. He might have seen some plays around the time. There were still the old mystery plays that were happening. You had some carryovers from that. So the mystery plays, what they, what they were is... They were closely tied to the Catholic Church, and they would just be plays that would be put on in the public square, where and they were tied to certain feasts days, feast days, and things like that. But they were dying out in Britain around the time, largely thanks to the Reformation, trying to get rid of any sort of vestige of Catholicity. Is that a word? Catholicism. <laughs> Catholicism. Thank you. <laughs> Catholicity's good. Catholicity's good. But there is reason to think that he probably saw some of these. We don't know how or when. But he did eventually move to London and become involved with the theater and started a, a group of play uh, actors. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> called the Kingsmen, not the Colin Firth Kingsmen. Important not to get these confused with the hyper-violent <laughs> yeah, action movie. Yeah. <laughs> and started writing plays, and they were performed. I think we talked a bit about this last time, uh, the way that London was set up and the way that the theater was set up at the time. You had the Thames, and the plays were close to the river, and on the other side, across from London, because they weren't technically legal. But if they were next to the river, then they weren't under the authority of the city, right? And so they could still take place. And you would have all sorts of people come. The economy at the time in London, it was a booming economy under Elizabeth's reign. And so most of the people who lived in London made 50% more than people across England. Um, life was fairly good for them, even for day laborers and things like that. And so they would have had petty cash to spend, and they would have come to see the plays. And so you get a, you got a wide mix of people that would have come to see Shakespeare's plays, which is interesting because most of people, I think, today see Shakespeare as this difficult to understand only for elitists. And people like Harold Bloom do their best. I know we keep talking about Harold Bloom, but people like Harold Bloom do their best to give Shakespeare that rap. But it's a bad rap because at the time. <laughs> it's like a vanilla ice. It's like a vanilla ice rap. It's like something by the Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, or... yeah. Because everybody would have come to see Shakespeare's plays and they would have all found it enjoyable. And so you would have had the queen and her courts. These plays were often, they might have been presented as, we have reason to believe they were presented to her and her court and at these homes of nobles and nobility. But then they would also have been performed at the stage of the globe, which he built and owned a percentage of. So he, he moved to London and this was kind of, this was the environment that allowed for the flowering of theater at the time and to have this golden age of theater. Before then, a lot of the high art and high literature would have been written for the courts, but with the theater, it kind of changed. It was very similar to what you saw with Roman Greece with their theater. It was a very public art, and so everybody could come and see it. So he started, his first play that we know of was performed in 1589, and this one, I think, was performed in 1596, as far as we know. And so it's kind of a mid-career play, he ended his career around 1610 and died in 1616. Um, we know for sure that he became wealthy. He was a landowner towards the end of his life and retired so that he could oversee his estate and be with his family. It's, we, he, we know that he died. <laughs> they think he died because he partied too hard with Marlowe after his daughter's <laughs> wedding. Got sick and died. <laughs> so... Yeah. Or it might have been Ben Johnson. Marlowe might have been dead at the time. And they say he didn't like his wife because he only left her a bed or something like that from yeah. the, the second best. He's, my second best bed was the only thing left in his will, something like that. To Anne Hathaway? To Anne Hathaway, Not yeah. the actress. Not the actress, no. Yeah. Mrs. Anne Hathaway Shakespeare. I hadn't heard that. 
I, I also think pe- most people think there's evidence that he was a family man and fairly fond of his kids, at least. Yeah, the idea that he didn't like his wife simply because of one line item in his will. Because of that will. Kind of silly, but that is what people say. Well, it's things like this, though, that so, we won't get into it here because we talked about it on the last podcast, uh, the controversy as to whether or not Shakespeare wrote his plays. The only thing I will say here is that one reason that I've read that people think this is you have Ben Johnson who was a playwright at the time. You have Christopher Marlowe, who was a playwright at the time. Christopher Marlowe was a spy. He was a homosexual. He was, you know, he's hip and cool. And he had this art life that we expect the artist to have. Ben Johnson got into knife fights with other guys, was thrown in prison. He, he had a pretty gnarly life as well. And then you have Shakespeare, who just, the greatest playwright, the, arguably the greatest craftsman with the English language to have ever lived. And he had this dull life that seems like, you know, um, seems fairly normal. And people just really don't want to think that this man who wrote these plays had a life that was this boring. I I actually like the fact that Shakespeare had a life like that. (laughs) So (laughs) I think it's pretty fitting. And you see that a lot of the writers who write some some of the greatest literature had lives exactly like that. So Brennan, I just want to interrupt here and say, you don't sound like a man who's watched the new TV show, Will, on TNT. Oh, I didn't realize this was going to be a plug for Will. I haven't even heard of this. <laughs> they actually are supporting the bookening today. <laughs> the description says, In 1589 in Elizabethan England, where a young William Shakespeare arrives from the small town of Stratford to an eclectic London punk rock theater scene, this seductive, violent world inspires Will to dream big, but his budding talent faces rioting audience- audiences, religious fanatics, and raucous sideshows. Attracted to Will is the beautiful, rebellious Alice Burbage, who is forbidden by society from pursuing a career in the theater. However, a chance encounter leads Alice's brother Richard to team with Will to create what soon becomes the greatest actor-writer partnership the world has ever seen. This drama series says TNT, so you know you can trust this, because this is from the very people that are making the TV show. Yeah. So they know what they're talking about. Yeah, I bet. This drama series says TNT is told in a bold, contemporary style and played to a modern soundtrack that exposes all of Shakespeare's recklessness, lustful temptations, and tortured brilliance. Huh. I guess you feel pretty stupid, Brandon. I guess I do. I never realized that he was the lead singer of Linkin Park. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could keep that in. You've got some egg on your face and some explaining to do. He's a tortured, brilliant rock, proto-rock star from yeah. what the TNT show Will tells us. Well, yeah, that's typically what you see people trying to make him out to be. They, they want to build him after whatever craftsman they wish he was. Right. And so some people think he was the Earl of Oxford because, of course, it would be somebody with a better education. Right. And with the name Oxford. I mean, that seems like he had a really good education. Or it was Francis Bacon. I mean, if you're one of those people that like philosophy, then surely it was a guy who could think well. Francis Bacon was a genius. Yeah, I mean, yeah. These plays, they're brilliant. So obviously we see, you know, guys like Dawkins and Christopher... you know, Stephen Hawking's, all these guys are writing all the greatest plays of the world right now. So surely it was, the, surely it was Francis Bacon, right? <laughs> or, you know, all the really wealthy, well-educated guys, like secretly, you know, all of Bob Dylan's lyrics, all the, the Nobel laureate Bob Dylan. Now we're going to find out one day they were all actually written by Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> or so. Elon Musk, perhaps. Yeah. This yeah. <laughs> yeah. is Bob Dylan was this puppet. Oh, come on. Yeah. It's just so stupid. It's really stupid. <laughs> We create the culture that we want to believe a genius should have, and then those geniuses try to live up to our expectations. Shakespeare had nothing like that. Shakespeare lived the normal life, but he just had an amazing power of perception and ability to see the world and a brilliance for language like no one else had. And he was born in humble station, fairly humble station. I mean, not the humblest. It's not like he was born to a goat herder. (laughs) Take that, goat herders. (laughs) I read all kinds of interesting things about Anne Hathaway. Really? The bad relationships? Well, the claims for it being a bad relationship and then the debunking of each of those claims. So she was eight years his senior. Okay. When they were officially married, she was pregnant. Okay. And gave birth six months later. And so the argument there is that uh, this was a shotgun wedding and he, she may have seduced him or something like that. He was 18 and she was 26. Um, the response to that is actually 
she was secure in station and <clears throat> orphaned. And he was from a poor enough family that he probably pursued her. And it was actually often the case that before the wedding was officially certified, there was already a, uh, a formal wedding with, and then, and then you had to actually have your wife be pregnant or so like many brides were already pregnant when they got their actual certification. Yeah. So there's that. Then there's the whole question of she lived in Stratford while he was in London doing his playwright thing. And so that proves that he hated her and tried to be away from her. Uh-huh. But the... the <laughs> Definitive proof. <laughs> right. Right. Case closed. And the response to that is that he was back in Stratford every chance he could get. And as soon as he secured his fortune, he retired. Goodbye, playwright. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, and he, went, and he lived in Stratford with his wife and family. Well, that's what the evidence supports. Now, what about... Stephen Greenblatt says. That's what the... Yeah. Is that we have every reason to think that he liked his life as a playwright, but it really, it was just, it was work for him. And as soon as it was done, he retired. As soon as he had a chance to retire, he did. Basically had the life, I mean, he had the life of a gentleman. I don't know where the quote is, but the, a gentleman at the time was seen as someone who could basic, uh, live a life of idleness without having to work with your hands. That was a, gen- a gentleman mm-hmm. and, his, and everybody wanted that. The second best bed thing. Yeah. Uh, the first best bed was saved for your House guests. So he was giving the bed that he was giving the mar- their marital bed. On. Yeah. Oh. He was giving their marital bed to. Well, that sounds to like her. something a poet would do. Right. Also, <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> and so he wrote that into the will, but she would have received a third of the estate, and the rest of the estate would have gone to their children, who would have been expected to care for her. Yeah. So there's just absolutely nothing to that, except maybe a romantic gesture that he wanted to secure in his will their marriage bed for her. Yeah. So there you go. Well, there we have it. There you have it. Shakespeare and old uh, Anne Hathaway. Yeah, people just have to come to terms with the fact that he was a fairly normal guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't the tortured genius that we think that he should have been. Most likely, as far as we know, I mean, he may have been eccentric and weird, but we don't. We just the the fact is is all the evidence points to he was a family man who actually managed his money fairly well, had a lot of real estate within Stratford-upon-Avon, was generous, probably helped redeem... His father actually fell on hard times, and somehow towards the end of his life, though, he got enough money to redeem the family crest. And most people think it's because his son, who had become a wealthy playwright, probably did it for his father. And so there's just evidence of who Shakespeare was. The very fact just a that, good guy. Just a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> the very fact, the fact that we don't uh, all, everybody speaks well of him. His friends all liked him a lot. Ben Johnson spoke highly of him and just seemed to be a decent person who also was the greatest genius to have ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> you talked in our other Shakespeare episodes, but I th- we've, we've had a lot of listeners join us since then. Maybe they'd like to hear. Um, you talked about how Shakespeare wouldn't have necessarily even seen himself as being in a lineage of genius. Yeah. Um, it's like I was I was hinting at there for a minute with, we want to build genius the way we think genius should be. And so with the romantic poets, which I'm sure we'll talk about one day, we'll get to Wuthering Heights, who was our Frankenstein. Well, are we doing Frankenstein? No, she's not, not on the year. list this year, but I'm sure Eventually, we'll get to it. Yeah. yeah. So she, Shelley, she was right in the middle of all this, new, this, the birth of this idea of what we see as the genius, which Walt Whitman would call the priest of the world. This was a foreign idea. Nobody thought of it that way at the time. You had the tradition of the town singer, the person who was very good at their craft, but the craft was no different than any other craft. And so as much as we want to see Shakespeare as this modern genius like a Dylan or a, um, who's the guy that killed himself? David Foster Wallace. That kind of tortured genius. That's all made up. Those people are just acting that out because we've made it up, that idea. Shakespeare would have seen himself as a craftsman like someone who builds a chair or someone who, was it Inigo Jones, the guy who was the famous architect at the time and helped a lot with some of the stagecraft and stuff. Someone who was just very good at what he did. He was a craftsman. And he probably wouldn't have had much expectation of posterity, right? No. I mean, some probably of the plays less. That, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say probably less expectation of posterity than an architect or a carpenter or something you like that. You build a right? building, it might be words. around. Yeah. yeah. A building, a chair, a piece of furniture, something that's going to last. It's going to be new playwrights and new plays, and they're just going to yeah. take your place just like he was taking the place of the people before him. Yeah, he would hope 
that maybe it would survive in a folio here or there, but there was no precedent for it becoming like it is today. So yeah, no, he wouldn't have thought of it that way. So it's interesting to see or try to actually think the way that they would have thought at the time. So he was writing for the people who were coming to see the plays, not for posterity, not to pass this down as some cultural inheritance. Right. So he certainly wouldn't have thought of himself the way that like a Hemingway would think like no. I'm going, I'm going into the ring against all the great writers of history and I'm going to make my mark. And nope. I mean, just like any good craftsman, he would have seen his craft in relation to what like Ben Johnson was doing and Marlowe were doing. And then the plays before him, like he was heavily influenced by Roman and Greek playwrights, but the same way that an architect is influenced by the architecture that's gone before, you know, not as part of some great canon that was being built. And then he was participating in the, um, what do they call it? The conversation of Western the, tradition. The conversation. Yeah. <laughs> All this stuff that we've created is, is some useful way, a lot of it, a useful way to think of art and literature, but in a lot of ways, just bloated way, because we really like to think we're clever. <laughs> so <laughs> Flatters us. Yeah, it flatters us. So... Is that what you wanted me to say? Yeah. All right, good. <laughs> I just, I, I, uh, I think we've made reference to it since then. It's probably going to probably make reference to it again. I think it's an absolutely beautiful way to think about Shakespeare. I love, I love that. I, 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 I'd like to meet him one day and make sure that that's absolutely true because I think it's a, I think, I don't know. It, it does my heart good to think that well, yeah, well, the I mean, greatest artist that ever lived wouldn't have been all self-important about it and would have just been like, I will put these words together in a good way that will entertain people. And he just happened to put time and care into it for this transitory moment. That's going to disappear and be done. Well, think about like even Homer or the Beowulf poet, right? They were creating for the people that were sitting in front of them and just telling the story, right? They had certain traditions they were following, but they weren't like him. Like you, Hemingway is a good example. Or um, James Joyce. They weren't meticulously crafting this thing that they thought was going to be innovative and the best. And because they were given this gift of genius, well, maybe Homer thinking he was gifted by the muses, but. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just, I mean, it, I think it's so, it's destructive in some ways that we now have these two paths where there's people that are just writing for posterity and they don't care what anybody thinks, or there's people that are just writing for, you know, people in the supermarket to read their Jack Reacher novels or whatever. And, and it's, it's a dumb, that's a dumb invention of the 20th century for those of you that are or for the, probably the, what the 19th of Walt Whitman and the, mm-hmm. that whole crowd. And don't be fooled by it. Listener. Yeah. You really do see it with, like the romantics that's kind of where it comes from i sing a song of myself or what's that stupid thing yeah it's narcissism is what it is it's pride and narcissism and looking in towards yourself and yeah there's there's a lot of good there's a good essay by a guy named walter benjamin about he actually likes it but basically he's just praising narcissism because the novel becomes this thing that's just introspective and looking in but if you think about shakespeare there's nothing introspective about he wasn't expecting us to sit down and read his plays silently that wasn't his expectation. His expectation was you were going to go to the globe. You were going to smell everyone around you, right? You were going to be down there with everyone else. You were going to be laughing. <clears throat> In fact, one so one of the things I was going to point out is kind of like how the Elizabethan stage was set up at the time. So it, you would have the pit of people just around the stage. Up here, you would kind of have the nobility, but everybody would be very close together. It would be muddy and it would be dirty and it would be loud and raucous. And actually, even at the end of a play like Macbeth, do you know what would often happen? What's that? For to get a standing ova- to get the next round of applause, they would like do a jig. <laughs> so <laughs> they would take off all their bloody clothes and then they would do some kind of jig or dance. And it was expected. It was part. It was just something exactly that like what the mechanicals do at the end of the, the play. The play, yeah, exactly. The play and the yeah. play we're Thisby about to discuss. and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thisbe and Philomena or Pyramus and Pyramus. Thisbe, yeah. that's it. <laughs> Philomena. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what is that? The Muppets, I don't know. That's it. Yeah. Sorry. Rerail that train, my friend. <laughs> so I guess that's 
a pretty good discussion of his life mm-hmm. and who Shakespeare was. Take a step back. I think it's interesting to look at the world that he was a part of, the Elizabethan world. I briefly mentioned that London at the time was booming and that's where a lot of the economy came from. And so for the first time ever, lower class people actually had petty cash to spend. And so they would often spend it on the plays. And in fact, in 1642, that's what would lead to Oliver Cromwell and the Puritan regime shutting down all the theaters, right? Because they just became places of debauchery is oh, what they would say. Yay, I mean. Well, we, I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, maybe they were places of debauchery. But they would have seen plays as evil, right. as wicked. I don't know what I think about Oliver Cromwell. What do you think about Oliver Cromwell? I don't know. Yeah. This is not the the history. <laughs> All right, let's, so let's forget Oliver Cromwell. He doesn't. When we talk about Milton one day, we'll have to talk about Cromwell. Death was a big part of their world. I don't think we realize how much death was just a regular thing. Up to half of children did not make it or live past the age of fifteen. Bubonic plague was wiping out lots of people. I think in Shakespeare's the year Shakespeare was born, like two hundred of the eight hundred people died in that town. And so death was just something that he grew up with. He saw it. And the way that that shapes your world has to be significant. It's very different than what we're used to. Antiseptics, all these things, they weren't a part of what he would have known. And so because of that, life was seen as transient. Life was seen as short, something that you couldn't just take for granted. And also something that wouldn't necessarily end well because they didn't have painkillers. They didn't have anything like that. And so it was just a very different world. And when you, then when you read a play like, um, Macbeth or Hamlet, it kind of helps, or Romeo and Juliet, for example. It helps to understand a little bit more their understanding of the world. But even though there was all this death, England at the time was going through two different things. One, it was going through a population boom, because unlike our nation today, people actually believed in having children. And so even though a lot of them died, they were having a lot of them. By I think by the time when he was born, it was like 100,000 people in London. By the time he died, it was over 200,000. So it really was an exponential rise. And so that did also lead to this, the more people who could do these other trades. Um, England was thriving at the time. A lot of textiles going out of England and being traded for things that they, a lot of people didn't even think they needed. A lot of excess. So they were bringing like puppets and spices and all these things back into England that helped feed this idleness. To give a name to it, it was Elizabethan era. Queen Elizabeth was reigning over England and was fairly happy, which as far as a playwright goes, that, that's pretty good. That means when people are dying of the plague or when people are being killed by invaders, they're not really going to go see a play. <laughs> so what do people say about when things are bad and people want to take their mind off it? So that's why the Avengers movies and all that do really well. So maybe there's a counter argument to that. But if the play, if the, if the, if the theater is being burned to the ground, <laughs> right, that does put a damper on the... <laughs> Yeah, and so, which make, reminds me why I wrote the theater in big letters up there. That was actually the name of the first theater that was built. It was called The Theater. The theater. Um, I forget who built it. So, yeah, so the, and, um, Elizabeth herself, her court was one of the patrons of especially the Kingsman, Shakespeare's troupe, but of play acting in general. She really liked what at the time were called masks. M-A-S-Q-U-E-S. And these had a long tradition, actually. You ever heard of the Mummers, the Christian, mu- the Christmas Mummers? Yes. Um, it, was a, it was a tradition where you would have townspeople, they would dress up, and they would silently go around Christmas time and do like a silent play in the local castle or in the local town hall for the nobility. And so why this is interesting is because we actually see it here in this play. So that's what's going on with the play within a play is they're getting ready to put on this play at Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding. And so there actually is a tradition to this and Shakespeare himself would have been a part of that tradition. He just was the professional version of the townspeople who would have done this before. And so with the king and queen, with Henry VIII, that became very popular. You would have these big productions called masks inside um, their court. Sometimes the nobility would actually participate, but it would be some allegory about the uh, king's relation to the country and in Queen Elizabeth's case, the queen's relation to her country. Sort of like what you see in Macbeth as well. Exactly, yeah. And it would have been a big production. And so you have some of the famous ones. um, Oh, what's the famous one? It was this guy who really wanted to impress Queen Elizabeth. So he basically bankrupted himself with his huge production. Actually, uh, Stephen Greenblatt's book, Will in the World, gives a really fascinating chapter on it, just telling you all that happened and bringing in famous architects to help build these like machines to help make things fly and stuff. And it would have been a big production. And so the courts were... 
This just basically became something that was expected. This was something that the courts would do. And then that expectation also came kind of into the theater and helped up the production value that you would have had in the Globe. It was the golden era of theater is, bas- is kind of what came about because of these various factors. So what kind of production value would we see if we went to uh, Shakespeare at his peak during his life? Uh, would we see special effects? and You would have seen costumes and stage design and stuff like that. I mean, it would have been in the center of the globe and, I mean, no special effects like we would expect. And you would see the best special effects for the Queen's, like, private masks. That's where you would have seen the big, like, fireworks and stuff. I think there were actually literally fireworks over the Thames. That's my understanding. It would be interesting. I think people have tried to do reproductions of, like, what it would have been like to have actually been at a Shakespeare play. You can definitely see reproductions of what it would have been like to be at the masks, and they were weird. In Queen Elizabeth, she was a strange figure. A lot of people think that... Well, we know that some of the sonnets were actually written to her, and but she developed a court of love, and I forget who said it about her. It might have been Walter Raleigh, but he said that everybody in her court was in love with her, and she fostered this. And so a lot of this came out with the poetry that was written to her. Um, Edmund Spencer wrote poetry to her, and you would have and you would have seen it with. You know, they had all the fancy clothing they would have worn. The things that we kind of stereotype the Elizabethan era with is actually just stuff that was in her court and the expectation that if you were going to be in this very special area of life, which is the queen's court, then you have to take on these mannerisms. And it was seen as this otherworldly thing. Why that's important is because we kind of see it at play here. You see it with the court of, you definitely see it with Theseus. You also kind of see it with Oberon and Titania with their courts. They're kind of a playful variant on this, the otherworldliness of it, the kind of a dream. And it could be Shakespeare's tongue-in-cheek critique of that world as well. So, because Shakespeare, he does find a lot of clever ways to make fun of the nobility while also making fun of, he's a... Equal equal, opportunity. Yeah. (laughs) He makes fun of everybody. And so Oberon and Titania, they're kind of ridiculous too, but they do share a lot of the mannerisms of Elizabeth's court. That's interesting. So, Hmm. yeah. And so he so would as just you seen, were describing it. I was imagining the, yeah. some of the productions. That it would I've just seen. be like, yeah, he would have seen it. I mean, and she, she was going through. I don't know if you've seen the movie Elizabeth, but she, I mean, the Spanish Armada, all these things. She was going through some really difficult things, mm-hmm. and she actually did manage to have one of the longest periods of peace in England's history, which is important because Shakespeare pretty much wrote during her reign. She died in, what, 1606? He For four years, he kind of was with James' new court, but really wasn't a part of James's court at all. And actually, after her death is when we have kind of his darker, weirder plays anyways. So I think it's fun to just know kind of how that that whole world kind of relates to this play in particular mm-hmm. with the masks and with Elizabeth's court. One fun thing I saw was it had, this is just a brief aside. It's kind of a digression, but had you ever heard of sumptuary laws before? Sumptuary laws? No. Nope. Apparently there, I, I talked about how there were a lot of expensive imports coming into England. Well, there was such a, there was such a, um, kind of leveling out of wealth where everybody, where the middle class could afford nicer things, that they actually had to have a law that certain clothing and certain like actual fabrics could only be worn by people in the court so that they could maintain that kind of hierarchy of dress. Mm -hmm. And so you could actually be fined or go to prison if you were caught wearing something that was only for like someone in Elizabeth's court that they could wear. You can kind of see in Shakespeare's time the, the breakdown of kind of some of the hierarchy that had been there, especially with the earlier courts with Henry VIII, it was very clear. And so you're moving, I mean, you're getting very close to modernity. The 1600s is what we kind of see as the beginning of the modern era. And so it'll be with the downfall of James, or no, the downfall of Charles, right? And the whole bloody revolution that happens and then the glorious restoration and all that that's going to take place in the mid 1600s with Milton that's really going to change the world and so Shakespeare's right at the end of this he's the last vestige of this piece that came after the war of the roses and the plagues and all that and probably a lot of the reason that he could write because he wasn't being asked to go die in a war right <laughs> or being killed by the plague so we've talked about the Elizabethan court we've talked about Shakespeare uh, some of the other things that are fun to understand to help understand to know where this play is coming from are the rituals that came kind of from the rural cultures but also from the pagan cultures so you had midsummer eve this is midsummer night's dream then you also had the tradition of the may day so one of the sources that heavily influences you have um plutarch's lives where he talks about theseus 
But then you also have Edmund, Sp- um, not Edmund Spencer, Jeffrey Chaucer's The Knight's Tale, and where he, he, he talks about a lot about the rites of May Day. And so May Day was this time at the beginning of May where you would have the maypole and everybody would dance around it with ribbons and stuff. And then that evening, the young shepherds and shepherdesses would go off into the woods together and frolic about all night. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and that was, that was May Day. I mean, here you have overtones of that for sure. You have them going off into the woods and instead of... reference at one point. Yeah. The Maypole and May Day, mm-hmm. the rites of May. Yeah, and so Midsummer's Eve was very. Midsummer Eve was similar to this, and it was a night. It was summer solstice, is what it was. It was the longest. Um, is that the longest day of the year? Summer. Yeah, summer yeah. solstice yes. is the longest day of the yeah. year, and so people would they would burn bonfires and stuff at night. There would be parties. There would be uh, feasting, and a lot of it was carryover from these pagan rituals where they thought that fairies and stuff would come out at night, and so you would burn the bonfires and stuff to keep them away. And so that's where you have the crossover with Oberon and Titania in their court. So this is Midsummer Eve, and then you have Midsummer Night, and so that's when they come out to play. And so Robert Goodfellow or Puck, he's a carryover Robin. of some of these. Say what? You said Robert. Robin Goodfellow, thank you. He is a carryover from these... He is actually a direct carryover from British folklore where... He's this mischievous sprite or elf. And so they would come out. These, unlike a lot of the traditions, especially with Irish fairies that we got uh, carried over into British folklore, these are not evil fairies. They're not coming to steal babies and take them away and replace them with a changeling. These are fairly friendly fairies. But there is a changeling. There is a changeling, yeah. But even that's not, they're not sacrificing or killing the changeling or taking him to Fairy Island. They actually seem to be fairly fond of this changeling. And so he tones down the fairiness of them and kind of uses, yeah. They're not fairies in the weird sense. They're fairies in... More benevolent. They're more benevolent. They're actually kind of a little bit like Edmund Spencer's fairy, um, if you've ever read The Fairy Queen. I guess the closest we have in today's culture would be the elves from the Lord of the Rings. They're a lot like the elves from the Lord of the Rings. If you want to have some sort of reference point, that's probably a good one to go to. They're like Galadriel. <laughs> so <laughs> they're otherworldly. They're very noble. They're more noble than even our noblest people could ever be. But there's a sense of strangeness and danger to them even. Right. And that thus they bring a lot of the chaos comes from them. But then a lot of the restoration towards the end of the play also comes from them. So would people have believed in fairies? At the time, some people, yeah, some people would have. I don't think Shakespeare necessarily would have, but yeah, people definitely, uh, Irish people did for sure. Superstition was big in Ireland. I mean, Yeats believed in fairies and he was a 19th century writer. Right. So, yeah, I don't think they would have believed in fairies like this. This was enough of a remove that, but some, a lot of people would blame things on hobgoblins and on Puck, like the little devil who would go around and he would mess with like your keys. So this would be somewhat removed, but it would also be a little bit more close to home. Than, yeah, like, like just like Ariel and the Tempest, that's kind of the touch point is people actually did believe in sprites and elves like Puck. So to believe that he could be the crossover to this other world. Yeah. I wonder if this is one of the earliest instances we have of something that's kind of like fantasy, <laughs> that there's this other world that's completely removed from us, but we have this little touchstone that can take us there or at least kind of connect our worlds like the wardrobe or... I mean pipes right (laughs) at least make us question what we think we know about our world or something like that yeah pretty much all i've got number i I wanted to ask you about this a lot of people think this play was commissioned for a wedding is that something that you've come across or greenblatt says that that's a really fun myth but there's no evidence that that's true but that is something that a lot of people think that it's fun to think about the fact that this wedding within a, a a play within a wedding would have been watched by people who are were on their wedding night and that's kind of where it came from. And nobody really knows the source of the story. But yeah, I have heard that. Probably just a nice, nice... He actually story. has a fun little opening where he talks about it. Well, let's hear it. You've hyped this green black guy. Imagine an aristocratic wedding in a grand English country house. Imagine that after the solemnities and the wedding supper, the newlyweds and their distinguished guests, including the most distinguished guest of all, Queen Elizabeth I, and so on and so forth, are treated to a private entertainment, a play written specially for them. And then he says... Scholars have told and retold this story, but basically it's wrong. So. <laughs> That's the gist of it. <laughs> I think it's true. Yeah. I, I want it. it to be true. I yeah. like to believe it's true. I think it's, yeah, it's a fun little thing to yeah. think. That's the way truth works. Yeah. Yep. 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 
<laughs> it's true for me, guys. And Francis Bacon wrote a great play for that. Yeah. One. <laughs> Francis Bacon's all over this one. <laughs> right before he kissed Anne Hathaway. That's right. Because <laughs> he loved the Princess Diaries part two. Uh, the only other tip that I found that I thought was kind of interesting was that there was a lot of weather in 1590, really bad weather. And so it's actually referencing topical current events when they talk about Oberon and Titania's little tiff causing. Maybe you'll tell me Greenblatt disproved this too, but that there was like all kinds of bad weather and things happening that year. So the year that the play came out. So it was like, oh, it's because Titania and Oberon are having a little marital spat or whatever so everybody would have seen that i actually hadn't heard that that's interesting yeah so people would have yeah (laughs) (laughs) yep (laughs) like hey that's fun (laughs) not much more else to say about it but uh well you got any more context for us mr chastine have we ever talked about comedies no that's actually i wanted to ask you about that (laughs) i guess we touched on the idea of comedy and irony and all that in our beloved or beloved, as I like to pronounce it, Winnie the Pooh episode, but we've never actually talked about the comic form. All right, well, let's talk about comedy then. The place to start is, like I said, he was heavily influenced by these Roman and Greek plays, and the form of comedy as we know it comes from that era. And so the form is generally, you start out with, you're, you're dealing with usually not the highest class people, but you are dealing with Middle class, often lower class, often a mix. As you see here, we see a mix of all those things. So Theseus is not a, Theseus is a duke. He is is you know he's part of the court. But um, oh, what's the father's name? Aegis or something like yeah, that. Yeah, how do you say it? Aegis. He's more along the lines of a um, Mr. Bennett. You know, he's a country squire. So he's always talking about his land and his what he's earned. And so he's very concerned about his daughter and her, his daughter's appearance and his daughter's marrying up and into the right sort of thing. And so it's typically, the strife comes from young lovers and the foiling at first of their attempts to get together in the Roman and Greek plays. It was often by some bumbling servant or slave. Here it's Puck. And, but that person also ends up helping them come together, kind of setting things right. There's usually parallel stories. You have the one that's kind of with the lower class, and then you have the one with the higher class. So here you get it with Robert Bottom and his, is it Robert, right? Nick, Nick Bottom. Nick Bottom. Thank yeah. you. Keep getting my R names. <laughs> you just want to get Robert in there somehow. <laughs> Nick Bottom and his crew, and then how they get, they get intertwined, uh, intertwined into the story. And then you have I mean, there's actually, I guess, multiple stories here, mm-hmm. but but the resolution is always up and it's always happy and it always ends with a wedding. So that's kind of the form that was inherited by Shakespeare. And so that should help readers understand, if you've never understood before, why the Divine Comedy is called the Divine Comedy. Starts out in a very bleak place. You know, you're starting in hell. <laughs> the bleakest of the bleakest. <laughs> And you're led up to where finally he is back together with Beatrice and they're united when they see the beatific vision and the ultimate marriage of man and God. So that's why it's called the Divine Comedy, because it follows in this tradition of you start out in a place, things kind of get worse. You don't know how they're going to get better. He's in purgatory. Oh, no. Virgil leaves him. Oh, no. What's going to happen? How is he going to ever make it? And then he makes it. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's a resolution and the resolution is always marriage. And so... We have seen comedy before. We've um, Jane Austen wrote comedies. That's what she was doing. She was following in the grand tradition of Shakespeare's comedies. Um, Shakespeare, of course, being Shakespeare, doesn't write them. And Jane Austen being Jane Austen, too. They don't write just the straightforward cookie-cutter comedies. There's always some fun little thing they're doing with it. So, But still, that's the basic form they're going with. That's it's a striking resemblance to the arc of history. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> to the arc of history. <laughs> we are living in a comedy, unless you're... Some of us are. Some yeah. of us are living in a comedy. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> Jake and Brandon talking about me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Aristotle says that comedy started with the phallic celebrations of primitive peoples. Is that what Aristotle said? Yeah. That's what I came across. <laughs> Aristotle was wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where do you think comedy started, Jake? With Jake V. Aristotle, Dawn of Justice. (laughs) (laughs) Comedy starts with God. Ah, well, okay. (laughs) Because, explain yourself. We have this tragic event called the fall of man, and then Mm -hmm. we have a long and winding path 
that ends in a marriage. The marriage feast of the Lamb. The marriage feast of the Lamb. That's right. Enough said. I don't know what, anything you want to add to the, add or subtract. No, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so take that, Aristotle. Thought you were pretty smart. <laughs> you with your phallic celebrations. Never uh, matched wits with the uh, Hoosier before. Right. That's <laughs> <laughs> <was> right. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> Aristotle just was knocked from his perch by one Jake Menzel. <laughs> Written and produced by Nathan Arberson. It was performed by Brandon Chastain. Brandon Chastain. And Jake Mensel. Arguably the, the past. The what? Nothing. Arguably the past. No. Um, arguably, are you quitting? Is that how you quit? That's arguably the past. That's <laughs> <laughs> when I performed that. <laughs> That'd be a weird I thought, way I thought, to tell I me. you were cueing me to say the pastors. Uh, no, no, no. I was. I thought I, you were too. No, you guys have misjudged me. I was going to say, arguably, Jake has the good credit. Like Jake has a better agent than Brandon because Jake gets the and credit, which in a movie lineup is always like like i think robert downey jr in that new spider-man movie he obviously can't be top build because that's going to be spider-man it's called spider-man so the second best thing is to be and robert downey jr did you see that spider-man movie yeah it was was amazing it was great did you see it oh yeah yeah oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) yeah oh yeah man i saw it michael keaton was awesome yeah he's really good yeah he's really good yeah but the top, whole thing was just really fun and good. Top two Marvel villain. Mm-hmm. After. M- maybe after Loki. Oh, that's really, really uh, nice. I think this goes right up there to my favorite of the Marvel films. The, the number one. Yeah, better than Avengers, I think. Even though Avengers is really good. Avengers would be close. They, they hit it out of the park. Yeah, I thought they. Four I, stars. <laughs> I thought they blew a breath of fresh air into everything that they're doing. Yeah, yeah no, it was great. Perfect use of Tony Stark. Perfect use of Tom Holland. Of Tom Holland. Perfect Michael use Keaton. Of, I'm not so interested in the dilemmas of high school people or having to remember that part of my life so maybe that's the only thing that's keeping the movie from being my number one marvel movie because i'm just like i don't care whether you fall in love with what's her face or not um nice twist though that she was mj MJ. was she mj that's what she said at the end was she mj i mean i know she's mj but she's not a what's her face kirsten dunst doesn't she play MJ in the... Yeah. yeah. Facebook, go to it and look up at Warhorn. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.